Oh, hello, Robert. Rob's here. Hey, Robert. Hey, guys. I found some trouble <laughs> with my audio again. So, Robert, welcome. Uh, David in uh, New York does not have a, a practice going, and so I thought that I would take this opportunity to talk in general uh, to him as if it were new people who uh, had no practice and what would be the value of starting a practice. And we've only been using the word practice. We haven't even used the word meditation, but rather just practicing. And the reason that we're talking about practice is actually just practice in general, that any skill that you want to develop requires practice. And that uh, uh, Anapanasati is actually a whole set of skills to be developed. And if we practice those skills, it will be of enormous fruit, of enormous benefit. But you haven't seen that benefit yet. And so you have to practice just a little bit to get a little bit of benefit. And then after you see that there is great benefit possible by practicing and developing the skills further. There's also a kind of a dark side to it in the sense that what we're actually doing is learning how to investigate the mind in order to clean it out. So you can imagine someone saying, well, I'm finally going to, uh, for some reason, I'm going to maybe turn the basement into a den or something. But in order to make the, uh, the place into a den or a comfortable home or a place like that, we've got to clean the basement out. And there has been junk in the basement for years, perhaps even some dead bodies and some things to regret and remorse and things we want to hide and whatnot like that. And so going into the basement to clean that place out is often a difficult chore for some people because they don't like what they find when their original intention was just to clean things out. Or another way of expressing it is, uh, this is a line drawing um, of a, a cartoon that's, that's quite uh, valuable here. Um, and it's a picture of a guy standing in a swamp or in a pond, and he's surrounded by alligators. And he's up to his waist in it. And the caption on this is, when you're up to your hips in alligators, it's hard to remember your original intention was to drain the swamp. So if you go into the swamp to drain it, you're going to wind up with some alligators. And that's one of the reasons why many people will become discouraged in the practice is because they don't like what they see. And it's better for them just to forget all about it. So with that warning, we can say that, oh, but if you are capable of draining the swamp and getting rid of the alligators, or you're capable of cleaning out the basement so that we can turn it into a, uh, a den or a second uh, living room, then it's going to be of enormous value. And so this is uh, part of the way that we can have with these analogies of why it's a good idea to start to practice. 
But in this case, what we're doing is, is that we're developing a, a small set of skills. We could go so far as to say four foundation skills, and when those skills develop, we use those to, ba to build other skills. And so those four foundational skills, the number one skill on the, on the list is what we call sati. It's become uh, almost part of uh, uh, American lore, or at least in Western Buddhism, the word is mindfulness is what they use. Have you ever heard that word mindfulness before? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. Here's the problem with mindfulness is that it only what mindfulness really is down at its basic core is to remember or to wake up to remember to be in the present moment. To not be thinking about something that's off someplace else, but to be here in the present moment. That's what we mean by sati is to remember to look at what's going on. And that's a skill that very few people ever develop very well. And so they don't have the value. And a way that we can think of it is, is that, um, have you ever heard of Murphy's Law? Um, yeah, I've heard of, I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Do you, do you know it? Is it a, anything that can happen will happen? Is that Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, but and that's the first half of it. The second half is the most important part, and that is is that anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it will go wrong at the worst possible time. Examples of that is when do rockets blow up? Do they blow up while they're being manufactured? Do they blow up after they're already in space, or do they blow up at launch time? when they're most critical, when they're stressed the most, that's when they blow up. Another example is a hotel, a new hotel that's, that's got a thousand rooms and they get a computer system that is guaranteed for a thousand rooms. When is that computer system going to break? Is it going to break on opening night? Is it going to break in a, a long time? Or is it going to break just at the time when the, uh, the hotel is absolutely full? 100%, every room is booked. That's the most likely time for that computer to go down because it's being really, really worked hard and stressed. Okay, so this is what we mean by it. And what we want Sati for is we want it to be available when we need it the most. Just when things are about to go wrong, that's when we need it. And so this is the, uh, the first skill that we develop. And we do that by watching the breath. With every in-breath, we practice a little bit of sati. Hey, Joe. And with hey. every out-breath, we practice a little sati in the sense of remembering to take a long, deep breath and remembering to take a long, deep out-breath. And we begin to slow the breathing down and start to relax with that. And as we breathe in long and remember to breathe in long and to breathe out long and remember to be uh, breathing out long, we also remember to kind of be here in this present moment with that breath. I mean, we can't have a, a mindfulness of a breath from a breath that we took last year or a breath that we're going to have, let us say, the day we die. No, the only breath that we can really be aware of or paying any attention to is the one that we're having right now. And that's the most valuable part of this entire practice 
is to literally be here in the present moment so that we can be there wakeful so that when shit happens, we can handle it happen. We can deal with it easily. That's because, as you know, when you don't deal with things handily and happily, it winds up being quite a mess. So one many times people have a whole life that has a lot of mess in it. That we can call that emotions. Or in the Pali word, we have word is dukkha, which means that we're just not really satisfied that something messed up and we weren't there to be on guard to make sure that we didn't go bonkers and feel bad because something messed up. Because things are going to go south. Everything's going to mess up. Rockets are going to get launched. Rockets are going to blow up. People are going to miscommunicate with each other. All kinds of problems can happen. The question is, are you going to be mindful enough to be able to handle that thing very well? Which comes to the second set of skills. But if you don't have that first skill, the other skills are not important. Here's what I mean by that. Imagine that someone is a karate champion. He's an old, old grand master. And that he's just strutting down the street in Chinatown, and all of a sudden these young thugs come out, you know, like in the Wild West, they're going to try to beat up the old grandmaster just so that they can get a reputation for it, right? And they're willing to get hurt in order to get that reputation. Now, if that grandmaster forgets his moves, his karate skills, he's defenseless against those guys. But if he remembers exactly what to do with it, he can handle them well. And so what we're really talking about here is, in fact, a kind of a martial art, except that it's a mental martial art. And the one that it sounds closest to is what you would call jujitsu. Have you ever heard of jujitsu? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows jujitsu. It means actually the Jew in it is has the word for in Japanese to be soft. And so. What we're looking for is to remember to take the easy way out, to remember to, to take it easy. That's really what this is all about, is don't make problems because it's easier to live if you're not living with problems. But we have to remember to not make problems because we're constantly making problems. And when we're out there making problems, Murphy's Law is going to be there. <laughs> Things that can go wrong are going to go wrong. And so we got to be ready for it. And so this is the reason for practicing Anapanasati, which is, actually means the sati is to remember to breathe. Anapanasati. Isn't that interesting? That's what it actually, uh, the word actually means, is means to remember to breathe. Mindfulness of breathing, watching the breath, noting the breath. And as we do that, we'd start to develop another skill, and that is the skill of observation, the skill of looking. In the Pali, they talk about it as right view, but many people think that means a, uh, a constructed view, like a world view or an idea or a way of thinking. But really, right noble view actually means right noble looking, investigating, noting 
what's there in the mind, because what we're actually going to be looking for is any problems or worries or frustrations or doubts or any of that kind of stuff that's actually in the mind that would hinder us from being in a really great state. And so we call those things hindrances. And so we're going to be mindful to pay attention or to note or to look or to investigate, is this thought that I'm having right now worth having? Oftentimes, the thoughts that we're having are really not even worth having. In fact, we even make ourselves feel bad because we're thinking about something that happened in the past that we can't fix. But when we reminisce about it, we feel bad, and there's no reason to feel bad because our bad feelings are not going to fix anything. In fact, our bad feelings is generally what makes even worse things happen because now we're working really hard to get out of our bad feelings that we actually talked ourselves into. So once we make this um, this investigation and find out that this thing is not worth thinking about, then we can immediately just throw that out and, and start having thoughts that are worth having, thoughts that are worth uh, listening to, thoughts of this present moment, thoughts about how nice things are, thoughts about everything's okay, everything is fine, no worries, no problems. And as we practice this, we begin to feel like we can do it. We feel like a, a champion. We feel like we're on top of the world. We feel like that, oh, Murphy, bring him on. I'm ready for you. I can handle anything. And so these are actually four skills that we develop, which is right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. So the right effort is, is to change the mind, which is, remember, we were talking about cleaning out the basement. Once we define that thing that we don't like and needs to be taken out, that's the effort that it takes is to take that thing out of our mental basement. Throw it out. Don't need that. It's just an old, old memory, probably a painful old memory. Why bring them up and have old painful memories? Let's take the easy way out and have some good, happy new memories. And so that's basically an easy way to talk about how we do our practice. And so I would invite Joe and Robert and, and Brandon to comment upon this. He's speaking gold. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, what do you have to say? Uh, yeah. It's, that's, yeah. That's about <laughs> it. You just breathe deep and enjoy. Yes, yeah, so this is actually the art of being happy, the art of actually it's, it's an art in the sense that art is a skill. That that's an important quality of art is, is that art is at its highest quality when it's quite skillful, which means that we have to practice. Whether that art is the art of music or dance or uh, painting or photography or Zen archery or whatever art form that you're using, it takes some practice. Another way of saying that practice is that each one of us, every one of us has spent our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad, giving ourselves problems and work to do, failures, disgust making enemies, wanting things we can't have. So we've been talking ourselves in, into feeling bad, 
having a bunch of rules we can't follow. Now we're going to practice feeling good. Actually feeling, we're going to talk ourselves into feeling good. You can feel good, can't you? I mean, you know how, don't you, David? Yes. Notice yes. that everybody right now is smiling, but no, oh, now we got a smile out of you. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that's where we're going. Is that we can, in fact, talk ourselves into feeling good. That's what jokes are all about. I mean, why would he even have a stand-up com comedian or a president or someone like that if he wasn't hilarious? A president. So why don't we go... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need, a, uh, um, um, let us say, an effective president. We need one that's hilarious. <laughs> and so we can begin to have a hilarious life. We can begin to have some rhythm and some rhyme and some beat and some music because normally what our lives are is kind of like noise. It's kind of scattered. Things are just kind of all over the place. I got to do this. I got to do that. My to-do list is long. All right. And so we live our lives like that. But when we practice this way over and over again, something kind of happens, and that is, is that we begin to get our whole life and our whole mind more organized. We begin to get into a rhythm because we're practicing over and over again of coming out of our bad feelings, coming into a feeling of really nice. We become and, and feel satisfied with life as opposed to wanting things and feeling dissatisfied. And so it becomes kind of a rhythm so that your life becomes kind of a music and everything is satisfying and everything is easy going and your your, um, your memory improves because now you begin to collect jokes that you want to tell yourself to cheer yourself up. You become your own stand-up comedian and you begin to love life because it's a good thing. And here we are, have been using all of our time and effort and energy, talking ourselves into feeling bad because that's how we were taught when we were kids. If you were around really happy people when you were a little kid, then you'd be a really happy little kid too. And then you would grow up as a happy adult. But for some reason, we are all blessed with unhappy parents. And we pick up that unhappiness from them we watch them, you know, kind of you heard about monkey see, monkey do. So we we imitate bad feelings. We imitate uh, taking on rules. We want to go along to get along. And so we learn a whole bunch of rules that we don't actually um, match up to. Most of the rules we have are standards that we can't even meet. And so we go around feeling like a failure a lot of the time we don't match up to our own set of rules or boundaries which causes suffering and so i offer you a new perspective and that is let's have one good rule and that is this rule of the buddha the dukkha dukkha naroda let's see when things are unsatisfying and throw that out and have something satisfying instead if we keep that rule we'll be able to manage the the world's rules easily by just having that one rule but mostly we have a whole bunch of rules that we can't live up to. And when we don't live up to them, we feel bad. We feel like a failure. So this is what mindfulness is all about, is to begin to inspect those rules that we've made for ourselves that we can't keep 
and begin to feel really good about the fact that, hey, I don't have to follow that rule right now. I can just sit here and relax. I don't have to go anyplace. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to write that email. I don't have to tell my mother off. I don't have to stab my dad in the back. I don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. I can just sit here and chill. But in fact, going to Brandon, that's what that word Nibbana actually means. It means just to chill. So we have little Nibbanas for everyone. And you can practice that. You can practice just sitting and chilling out. I mean, we all like to just sit and chill, but we don't make a, a, an intentional habit of it. And so that's what the practice is, is a practice of actually intentionally sitting down and, ch and intentionally chilling out. And guess what? You get pretty good at it after a while. <laughs> Yeah, their whole Robert is just chilling. <laughs> Feels good. So and you David, can do it any time. Yeah, so you can do it any time. You you take yeah. your breath with you. You never leave the house without it. <laughs> Some sometimes I I find that we can separate in our minds uh, like our practice versus regular life, and forget that you can just uh, live your whole life uh, practicing. Uh, and that that's kind of like the goal. Mm -hmm. Well, David, what do you think? I think that's great. I think there's a lot of uh, great points and wisdom. Everything you just said. Well, I invite you to give it a go. Do some practice. Check it out. Yeah. Take a as we're talking just start noticing a little bit that you can take a long easy in breath and then a long easy out breath and the more you do that the more you realize you can manage that while you're doing just about anything in life and then you have mindfulness instilled into anything you're doing almost or really everything if you get pretty good at it and that can transform stuff in a way that is rather surprising. And it can do it pretty quick. Especially if you've been practicing doing bad meditation forever. <laughs> 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 you've developed a little bit of the skills to, to learn how to take the easy road pretty quick and easy. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's just... right. It's... Go ahead, David. I was just going to say, now just um, instead of taking suffering as your object, just take the joy as your object. Take all the good aspects of experience as the object instead of a mix of good and bad. Take this. Forget about the bad stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do take the, um, uh, the object of meditation of whatever is in the mind, but we do that with discernment. So, in, in fact, going back to the analogy of the basement, when we're cleaning out the basement, we don't want to rip up the stairs down to the basement first. That would be a pretty stupid thing to do. We have to actually be careful about how we're, how we're doing things or, or looking at it. But yes, what happens with, with uh, Western meditation generally is, is that they get focused on the dukkha by just saying, look at just whatever's there. Well, if we don't actually clean the place out, 
than wherever we look. In other words, every time we go into the basement, if we haven't done the job of cleaning it out, it's just going to be the same old garbage. <laughs> and so um, what we're really going to do then is that we're only going to look at this piece of garbage enough to say this is garbage, and then out it goes, up the stairs and out to, to the rubbish tip. And once we do that, and keep doing that over and over again, guess what? The basement gets pretty well cleaned out, and now we can uh, enjoy the basement without all the garbage in it. That's the difference between uh, the actual teaching of the Buddha and what is normally known as uh, Mahasi method that's uh, quite popular in the United States and the West, is that they don't take the right effort to throw the stuff out and, and what we call gladden the mind or take wholesome objects in the mind to come into the present moment and find something really nice about this present moment so that we can become satisfied coming out of our dissatisfaction. See, if we only just see dukkha, 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 we're going to continuously dis be dissatisfied. In fact, if we develop the skill of sati, so that we keep looking at the dukkha and keep looking at the dukkha and keep looking at the dukkha, our whole life winds up being just a rubbish tip. Everywhere we look, we see that. And in fact, that's something that happens with the beginning meditators a lot. So that they, they begin to meditate and all they can see is their frustrations. And so they become frustrated about their frustrations. They don't like it. Okay. And that the 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 the, um, the right effort is is to say never mind, start again. Never mind that this is a pile of rubbish. Out it goes. Another thing that that I notice in myself is uh, like a really high expectations, and uh, sometimes I forget that I'm making the rules for myself. So then my meditation becomes another. Uh, like place that I'm setting rules for myself. And so that is like the the new uh, unwholesome thought that I have to notice. For instance, this morning I was laying in bed and I woke up a little bit late and I started beating myself up mentally like, oh, you should be you should be meditating. What, what about your practice? You know, and uh, in, and then that's that's the unwholesome thought to see. Right. Is like. Uh, yeah, and then I was like, okay, well, never mind. Just forget the meditation. They have their uh, the Dharma group, so just join that and see how things go. So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I've been wanting yeah. to use this this joke that that Rob gave to me. Uh, we don't use hard R's here. We don't it's what? Dom we don't use hard R's here. It's Dharma. Yeah, Dharma. I know. <laughs> It's because, it's because I've been in Plum Village for so long, and they always say Dharma in Plum Village. But yeah, <laughs> I, it's just a little Dharma Dharma joke. Yeah, nothing to worry about. Throw it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they are right. Yeah. There we go. Just a little art. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, just a little art. <laughs> that hard art. They sound horrible, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so david we were uh, also going to discuss this issue about what is nibbana 
because there's actually a hard form of nibbana. That's when it becomes a goal rather than the soft kind of nibbana, which everybody has from time to time. I mean, if you didn't ever relax, then you probably would, you know, die early or uh, have a disease or uh, suicide or something strange that we often, like every day, have a little bit of relaxation, a little bit of nirvana. We cool off a little bit every day. Then, in fact, one of the ways to say it is, is that you could not even go to sleep. You couldn't sleep itself if you could not have a have a nirvana. Eventually, the mind stops enough worrying about tomorrow so that we actually can get some rest and peace and go to sleep. So another way of looking at that is, is that when someone doesn't bother themselves all day long with all of these um, uh, mental and emotional fires, if they're cool all day, then they don't need so much sleep at night for the repair. But in fact, uh, uh, people begin to sleep very, very lightly when they've got nothing heavy on their mind. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, and so this is what we're talking about, this word dambana, or uh, the hard word is nirvana. And that, um, <laughs> and that it's, it becomes hard because it becomes a goal to where the reality of nirvana is cooling off, not, not the work of heating it up. That in fact, the original word itself uh, was used in two contexts in the time of the Buddha. And so he grabbed this word to uh, use it as an example for what he was talking about. And we do that in our language, too, in the sense of we have these words like uh, cool down or chill, maybe, or uh, uh, cool. OK, these are the kind of words that we're talking about. And so that's how the word was used in the time of the Buddha and that the reference was for animals, that when an animal nibbanas, that means that it's becoming domesticated. For instance, the dogs are not hot because they're not barking at strangers. They're not chasing traffic. Okay, they're cool. And the other one is uh, cooking food, that when food is cooked, right when it comes off of the stove, it's hot. And it's unfit for eating. That's especially true with pizza. Have you ever burned your mouth because you ate food that was too hot? You want to get it out. Or maybe you swallow it and then you burn in the inside too. Okay. So what we mean by that is, is that we want to wait before we chew and digest things to let it cool off. Don't be a hungry ghost for the pizza. Right, don't be so hungry, because when we are hungry, then we're willing to whoop anything down, no matter what condition it's in, rather than waiting for it to cool off. And so when somebody feeds you a really hot word, like imbecile or bully or whatever words that you uh, uh, get hot because they use that word on you, before you devour it, Savor it a little bit. Don't let it in. Let it cool off. In other words, it does not have to have that heat for us to feel bad. 
Another way of looking at it is, is that we can let it just slide by. by. Oh, that wasn't me. <laughs> you can't touch me because there's not much me here for you to hit. And so that, that's also a quality of the cooling off is, is that whatever it is, the me in there that gets hot is not important anymore. And so things are not important enough to get hot about. And so one of the ways that we can talk about it that actually is uh, anti, um, let us say, society, not antisocial, but that society doesn't like it when we talk about that the teachings of the Buddha brings us to a way of taking the easy way out in all situations. We just take the easy way out, but that's a skill. You have to be highly skilled to be able to play dodgeball so that you just happen to just move just enough out of the way so that they don't touch you. Or another way of talking about it, mental jujitsu, that we don't resist. We don't try to block the uh, the attack. We just kind of step aside and let them fall on the floor all on their own. And so this is what we mean by nibbana is let things just cool off. We don't have to get stuck with that hot arrow or the slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes. We're really fortunate because all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune miss me. They miss the target. There's nobody there to hit. And so this is a way of learning to dance. This is another way of talking about the, the Dhamma is learning how to dance. And what is the dance that we do? The dance of avoiding getting hit by anything including our own mind and our own thoughts. And so we learn to be cool. Now, um, in Western Buddhism, there is a whole quality of um, trying to make this an attainment or work, to make things uh, hot, to strive. In fact, uh, part of the last thing that the Buddha said is translated into, uh, it's up to you guys now, therefore strive diligently. But the Pali itself doesn't have the word strive in it, or even diligence. It has to do with be persistent, do it over and over again, practice it regularly, over and over and over again. So it's, it's persistence, easy persistence that we're looking for, not working really hard, striving, trying to get something, and then relaxing because we give up. Then going back and doing it really hard again for a little while and then giving up. That's what Western meditation seems to be, especially when they're trying to sit for long periods of time. Rather, it's better just to do it for a short period of time as often as you can remember to do it. That's the real practice of the Buddha. And how we want to do that is by getting away from it all, to find a quiet place. We can close our eyes, even if we're sitting on the bus. We don't have to work with the other passengers or anything like that or worry about what we're going to do when we get to work or anything like that. We can just sit there and chill. Just sit there and remember, hey, right now it's just great. Everything is nice. Everything is wonderful. And so this is the way that we want to practice is the skill of doing it over and over and over again and just chilling out and having a nice moment.
Brandon, now let's talk about Nibbana. What did you, uh, we've talked about the soft part. You tell us about the hard part. Well, I'd love to talk about the hard part. And I'm rather curious uh, what your view of where this might have come from in the suttas or maybe where someone threw it in as on top of the suttas. Maybe it wasn't there in the first place. I don't know. But um, the answer to that easily is every one of us comes to the easy Dhamma with our hard efforts. Every one of us makes that mistake. And it's been happening for centuries. I know and I when did the it. same mistake is, is repeated over and over and over again, you can see that it becomes part of the tradition. Yeah, so the the hard nibbana is uh well a good person who I learned about the hard nibbana from was uh Daniel Ingram and mm-hmm. he talks a lot about it um one thing well, look that, how hard he tried though you got to give him credit for that well i will say uh you know Daniel definitely gave it uh a lot of effort um for sure um, I commend him 100% on his effort. Um, Guess but, what? That's exactly what the Buddha did. Before he became enlightened, he was trying everything. He tried the jhanas and he tried austerities and he was starving himself and he was doing all kinds of spiritual practices and he was the absolute best at it. He really, yeah. really strived hard. And then he recognized, hey, <laughs> Why don't I just sit down and enjoy myself instead? Well, from what what I understand of hearing you talk about your own biography, Damarado, is that you have had periods of striving uh, as well uh, at various times. Yes. Well, he said absolutely. we all we all come to we the all easy do. path by doing it a really right. hard way. <laughs> yeah. One of the ways of actually thinking about it is, is imagine that we're lost in the wilderness or the forest or whatever like that. And way off in the distance, we hear a train whistle. But we're lost. We're in the, I mean, real wilderness with hills and trees and bears and all kinds of stuff. But way off in the distance, we hear a train whistle. And so we start making the effort to get there and we wind up finding the railroad tracks and we recognize that all oh, the railroad station is only just a short walk from here. And so now we walk to the railroad station and we sit down and we rest and wait for the train to come. And when the train comes by, we get on board and now we got an easy, you know, taking it easy. We're on, you know, on the easy train. That's the way of looking at it is, is that we are all stumbling around without the path or, uh, or without uh, the transportation. Now, in the time of the Buddha, we didn't have trains, but what they did have is the idea of the path. That here we are stumbling around in the, in the wilderness, lost, can't find our way around, everything is dangerous, and then we stumble across a footpath. What are we going to do with that footpath? Obviously, we're going to follow that footpath, but the question is, are we going to follow it uphill or are we going to follow it downhill? Which, Brandon, are we going to choose? Why oh, is I it like that we always... Way occasionally, but the, the downhill is pretty fun uh, once you get going with it. 
you just got to make sure not to go too quick on how much, how easy it gets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, because we have to stay on the path. If we just start rolling downhill, we'll wind up hitting into a tree, and that happens with meditators a lot. They think that they're, they've got it good, and then they'll have an accident or something. Never mind. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. Get back on the path. Keep following it. That's all we have to do. But there are times of disasters. But that that question is an interesting one, because why is it that everybody that we meet is on the uphill path? And so we think that because everybody else is on the uphill path, that's the uphill path that we should take to take to, you know, I mean, they talk about hill climbing and Nibbana being a high place and all of that. So the natural idea is that we got to go uphill, got to work really hard at it. Well, I think that there's also a culture associated with hearing the story of the Buddha and then trying to replicate his life. Uh, and I know uh -huh. that this happens like specifically with the Goenka tradition where they emphasize like someday you're going to have to be able to sit through the night just like the Buddha. So you better be able to physically do it when you can when that when that moment comes and then there becomes this massive emphasis on like really long sits uh mm -hmm. there and a lot of a lot of striving and it's sort of like i struggled to get to where i'm at so you should do it too even though maybe like you you don't have you don't really have to uh to do that you know um but it tends it tends to come through the culture culture a little bit i find in the meditation community and the friends that i've met along the way I know. I've been there, done that. I spent three years with Goenka, 1980 through 1983, in and out. <clears throat> so I know, I know about the striving. Been there, done that. And uh, it was when I got to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa when I found out what really the practice was all about. It wasn't about striving at all. It was about chilling out. So that's why I would recommend the uh, 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 the Nibbana book, which is basically um, if anyone is already practicing Anapanasati or practicing meditation, generally when they call, they're practicing by going uphill. And and so my job is now easy. They've already got the path. All I have to do is just tell them to turn around and come on downhill. <laughs> that's all there is to it. <laughs> Take the easy way out <clears throat> and point out that that's exactly what the sutras are specifying. But we have to understand how to read them. That's, in fact, what I got from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is how to read the sutras so that we can come to the understanding that the Buddha really did take the easy way out. And so the, the sitting up all night is not striving. It's just that that's what they did back then. Then, in fact, you sat up all night before. You did it because you were interested in doing something. But when it's meditation sitting in hard postures that you're not used to, that in fact, in the suttas where it says, and there's many of the suttas, in fact, it's both in the Anapanasati Sutta and also in the Kaya Nupasana Sutta, which really goes in great depth about the jhanas with uh, analogies and all that kind of stuff. 
they both start with that little phrase of go to the uh the forest to a foot of a tree to an empty hut to a pile of straw and sit down upright and mindfully establish breathing in and breathing out that's how the whole thing starts right except that in the uh, English translation, it always puts in the phrase cross-legged. The poly does not have the word cross-legged. It has the word couch. It has the word couch? It has the word couch. (laughs) (laughs) Or chair. It says to sit down, but it doesn't say cross-legged. That cross-legged is, in fact, what people would naturally do if they lived their lives sitting on the ground or on the floor. And they do still do that even in common times today in the tropics. It's only in northern climates where people want to get off the floor into furniture. And so at the age of two, we're picked up off the floor and put into a high chair for our meals. The Thai kids, they eat on the floor their whole lives. I got a stepdaughter that I first met when she was 11 years old, and now she's 19, so I've known her all of these years, and she eats every meal sitting in the lotus posture. You know that posture where all the Westerners lust and strive for? She's just doing it naturally. She does it her whole life. It's a very stable posture to sit in. Many Thais can sit in the lotus posture, and they can also sit in a sideways posture that's even more difficult for Westerners to get into because they don't have the flexibility at the hip level. And so the problem is not being able to sit up all night. It's to sit up all night in a posture that you're not familiar or comfortable with. And so I actually trained to get into the lotus posture. I could sit in the lotus posture for an hour or so at one time. And then the leg got broken and a piece of steel got put in. And I can still get into the lotus posture, but it's painful. And there's no reason to sit in the lotus posture. I could just say, been there, done that. And now I can take the easy way out. Why should I keep trying to prove that I can sit in the lotus posture? When it's a painful thing to do. Well, it was painful in the beginning, but I called that was the thing that I should be doing. I should be able to sit in those postures. Yeah, I worked really hard at it. Now I don't work any hard anymore. But I found where the train tracks were, <laughs> finally. <laughs> and not stumbling around in uh, our own mental wilderness of working too hard to find our way around, that the path is there. It's an old path. By the way, the Buddha even says that it's an old path that he just merely rediscovered. The way of thinking about it is people like Eckhart Tolle. He found that path on his own. He just kind of stumbled across it. But when it came time for him to start teaching about what he had been able to do, he has to read Buddhist books to figure out what happened. (laughs) And so... Um, the path is possible. People can figure it out. Generally, they're artisans who do it. Just to figure out how to take life easy by not giving ourselves hassles, not giving ourselves jobs that we don't need. And we're constantly doing that because we've got standards, you know. Well, why have standards? 
standards, I mean, here's one of the things about standards is, is that if you have a standard, you're not always going to meet up to it. If you don't meet up to it, then you're what? You're a failure. And that's, that's not a good feeling. So if we have standards that we can't meet, that means that we're going to, uh, we have kind of a built-in mechanism for feeling bad. But if we are actually friends with ourselves and don't hold standards or don't hold ourselves uh, critically and think of ourselves as uh, in a critical way and judging ourselves, but we think of ourselves, in fact, as the best friend that we nurture. And so these are the kind of wholesome thoughts. Unwholesome thoughts would be thoughts of um, antagonistic, thoughts of failure, thoughts of striving, thoughts of wanting something that we don't have. It's better just to feel nurtured. Just easy. Everything's all right. So we nurture ourselves. And when we nurture ourselves, then we feel nurtured. Here's an example. The guy and the girl are spending a week or two together because they have the time, but the time is now over and the girl has to go off to go to her job or something like that. And the guy was enjoying his um, friendship with the girl. So when she left, now he starts to miss her and he starts to pine for her and feel bad. How many of you have ever experienced anything like that? Right. We lose something that we had and we don't like it. All right. But the reality is, is that if he has thoughts about her in Thai language, they have the um, the phrase, we don't say miss you. We say been thinking about you. Kit Tun Kun is the Thai phrase. I've been thinking about you. Now that been thinking about you is actually a pleasurable way. So you can actually think of the girlfriend who is gone with the thoughts of, wow, I really enjoyed it when she was here. That in fact, when she was here and doing what she was doing, the guy felt good because he liked what she was doing. But in fact, he was making himself feel good when she was there. Now that she's, he's not there, he thinks that it was her that made him feel good. Where in fact, it was he that decided to feel good. And when you understand it like that, you can say, oh, well, when she goes, I can sit here and think about her and remember that, yeah, I can think about her and feel good right now. I don't have to miss her. I can think about her fondly and enjoy it. Now, isn't that a whole lot easier than to work ourselves into worry? I miss her. I need her. She's abandoned me. <laughs> I can't live without her. I mean, those are the kinds of thoughts and words that we have when we get um, all tied up with it. I need her. I want her. I can't live without her. We even put that kind of stuff into songs and, and make it romantic music. Where, in fact, that's not really romantic. Being romantic means that, oh, I really remember her fondly. I like it. I don't have to pine for missing something because I've still got the memories right here. And so let's have wholesome thoughts about her rather than unwholesome thoughts of missing her and wanting her to be back that I can handle myself. I made myself feel good while she was here. I got along without her before I met her. I can get along without her now. That's the new song we're going to sing. I can handle that. I don't have to miss her. 
I can be okay without her. I can feel good about it when I remember her. That's how she would want us to remember. I mean, does the girl actually want you to pine for her and want her and cling to her and try to force her to come back to you just so you can feel good? But she's got other business to do. She wants to be off someplace else. She left. Let her go. <laughs> she doesn't want to come back. If she did, she will. And if she and if she and if she finds you comfortable, happy, relaxed, and glad to see her, then she'll want to come back. If you're pining for her and want her very badly, she's going to react to that differently. <laughs> so it's a matter then in this example of we create our own reality by wanting something that we don't have when we're fine without her right now. So this is the way that we practice. We practice so that when those thoughts of pining and wanting and thinking about her and missing her, when those thoughts come up, we have sati. Ah, look at what I'm doing. I don't have to have those kind of thoughts. I can throw those things right out and I can just be happy right now. I can have joyful thoughts about her, not um, missing kind of thoughts. Joe, you look like you're on the verge of a comment. <laughs> Oh, I did? Yeah. You're sitting there, <laughs> yeah, doing this. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, just because I, I relate to it, just because I, I got I got divorced like two months ago, so I can I can relate to this this feeling. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this one struck home, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to think about her like that. You don't have to miss her. You, you got along without her before you met her. You can get along without her now. You'll be okay. You'll be fine. I have a question. Yes. If you have time. Um, when I do the um, the gladdening the mind technique and I'm doing Anapanasati. Um, sorry, I'm just thinking how to phrase it. Um, I, I normally have like two different uh, modes that like I'll go into. And one is like I feel better than I did before. But there's like this really strong feeling of effort and resistance of trying to suppress all the um, all the 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 negative thoughts and sensations and stuff. Um, and that's and the overwork. Like, that's um, the over effort. And then the other is like, I'll I'll be just a bit like sad and like I'll feel more relaxed and more chill. There won't be like the hot resistance, so it'll be more chill. But there'll be like It'll be like a bit like sad and melancholy and I'll sort of like go between those. But my mind never sorts to naturally rest on like a still like, I guess, middle ground or it doesn't. It's very hard for my mind to like just find somewhere to just naturally rest for any more than just like a brief moment where it is just like just like a nice sort of perfected kind of peace. OK. Um, in the beginning, you can expect that. That. Um, the the beginning, um, we talked about four skills. These four skills that we've got going here are together to build a new skill. And that new skill, we can phrase it as getting into a really good state. When you practice all four of these together, they become into combination a, a new kind of skill. And that skill is to chill. 
Mm. Okay. Now, getting into that state is uh, the practice for the beginner. Getting into it, getting into it, getting into it. Why? Because we know it's going to be very temporary. But at least we got into it. That's the important thing is being able to get into it over and over again. And in the suttas, this is called the uh, the first skill of of jhana or the first skill of chilling is to be able to get into it. And so we want to practice getting into it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Well, if we just got into it and stayed in it, then we wouldn't be able to develop the skill to being able to get into it quickly and easily. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm okay. always I'm always having to like rebuild my car again. But well, that's the skill that we're trying to develop. And so congratulate yourself for giving yourself yet another opportunity to chill again. Okay. Yes. It's real. it's not a matter of getting cold and getting colder and getting colder and getting colder. That's not the skill that we're developing. The skill that we're developing is to see that we're hot and chill. Just a mm. little. You know, we're looking for refrigeration temperature, not deep freeze. Yeah, yeah. And just deep chill. Deep freeze often. is a goal. Refrigerator is easy. Yeah, refrigerator is easy. So is it just just practice then? Just repeated practice again and again and again? And eventually... And again and again and again. Well, here's the next point. Actually, the second skill to be developed then is to sustain it. You've probably heard that phrase, applied and sustained thought. Okay, the applying it means to get into it, to keep getting into it and to keep getting into it. And that's the first skill. And then the second skill is once you've got it, can you maintain it just a little bit longer than you normally would? Then instead of three or four or 10 mind moments, now you can get it up to 20 mind moments. You can get it last for two seconds or three seconds now. And then we do it again. And it lasts for a short time. And then we fall out of it, and then we remember, and then we do it again. And this is the cycle that we want to get into. This is a very wholesome cycle to get into because that's the cycle of developing the skill of getting into it and the new practice of learning to maintain it. So that these two twin skills together over practicing many, many times over and over and over again it gets us the ability to be able to get into it fairly easy and maintain it for a little while, mm-hmm. which is should a really I, excellent place to get. Yeah. Should I practice it all day or should I take breaks? Um, actually, I wouldn't say take a break, but rather to let it be finished in the sense that now you're going to start paying attention to something else. Mm. Okay. Like going to the car and opening the door and getting into the car and that kind of stuff. Okay. So there's going to be things to do. The question is, can, if the mind becomes unwholesome with an unwholesome thought, can you maintain mindfulness or can you bring it back up when you need it? An example of that is that you finish with your meditation, you get up, you go into the car, you get the key, you put the key in and the car won't start. Now, how do you feel? 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's when it's when something comes up that we take the opportunity to practice. But if I'm already mm -hmm. if I'm already OK enough, then I can just like go about my day and be a normal person. Mm -hmm. Don't have to practice it's in the background. Yeah. Right. But guess what? Cars don't start. Toes get stumped. People shout at each other. Ten thousand things a day possible for you to trip over and fall down on and feel bad. And as we develop the skill of checking that out, recognizing, hey, I don't have to feel that way and I can change it and I can come back and feel good over and over and over again and get into the rhythm then of checking it out and coming back and taking a deep breath and say, wow, I don't have to write that email right now. Why am I drilling over? Oh, I got to write that email. I know, dear Mr. Blah, blah, I hate your guts and I want you to die. No, I don't want to write that. Hello, Mr. Goodman. I like you very much, but, and then I go in, I want you to die. <laughs> and then yeah. I can say, wait yeah. a minute, I'm not writing that email. I'm no place close to the computer. Let me just forget the whole thing. <sighs> and I'm out of it now. And he is not in my mind and he's gone. And there's what a relief it is. I don't have to write that email. Not right now. And maybe when it's time to write that email, I can have that same thought. I don't have to write that email. Not right now. <laughs> And pretty soon we can just write well, it never was a problem anyway. I never did have to tell the guy off and he wouldn't go do what I wanted him to do. He's not going to go hang himself or, or <laughs> do any of that stuff. So why should I bother telling him? I could just chill instead. Um, I have one more question just about effort, which is sometimes it feels like it takes so much effort to do the technique that the that the the end result is I actually feel um, worse than if I just let like the negative thoughts and emotions be that or well, not thoughts because I guess you can just disbelieve that as soon as you notice it. Learn um, also like, the emotion, to be like, satisfied with the thoughts that are there rather than labeling them and pounding them into the shape of they're not good enough. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean with like the really hot resistance feeling. It's like I'm trying to keep uh -huh. it all out so that my mind stays free of hindrances. But that can make so much effort that it's actually like less enjoyable than just feeling like a little bit miserable or a little bit bored or. OK, so one of the ways that we can do that then is you've heard this story of with someone who has only uh, one tool that's a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, basically what that means is that he's got that hammer out looking for nails so that he can pound them, whether it's actually a nail or not, okay? Mm. What we would rather perhaps practice is to kind of be on standby, to be very, very alert to, is this actually a real nail or not? That's mm. the way to do it. Is this thought worth having or not? Is this a nail in my coffin or is this a wholesome thought? But does this does this uh, attitude apply to uh, the mindfulness of the in and out breath too, or is it just to the thoughts? Uh, both, but in then in fact that they work together and is best. So when, when the, it's the bad thoughts arise, then you return to the breath and then throw the bad thoughts out. But it, okay. you don't have to be focusing on the breath all day to develop the skill. 
because that was really helpful for me. Like I was spending, like I watched the the video that you have on your channel uh, as like the the first one when you go to your channel about uh, practicing at work, and uh, I started uh, just maintaining mindfulness on the breath uh, all day at work and it was making everything so easy i just wanted to do it all day anyway <laughs> like right so uh, long as you want to do it all day and it's easy anyway but when you start to have frustration and resistance to it recognize that and take the easy way out again would be the correct practice the wrong practice would be striving really hard to maintain mindfulness of the breathing when you're not really getting anything out of it you're in fact training in uh an unwholesome skill at that level oh uh, yeah i see so if it's easy okay, that we're really good, looking then, for satisfaction fine, but if it's horrible mm -hmm. you know there's no need to force yourself to keep the mindfulness on it Right. That's a rule, isn't it? Which, but, but that's not the instruction. The instructions is, is that never mind, start again. Not you got to keep doing it and you got to keep doing it and you got to keep doing it. That's not the instructions. The instruction okay. is start again. Start again when you remember. To start again when you remember. That's the first and important skill that we need to develop. And part of that uh, uh, never mind start again is actually forgiving ourselves for having just screwed up by losing track of the breath. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. So I, what I what I find with myself specifically with some of the uh, emotions that you're talking about, Robert, is uh, I'll notice that there's a resistance uh, there. And what will end up happening is I'll sort of say to myself, oh, no. How long is this going to last? Oh, here's this emotion again. Oh, God, I'm going to be stuck in this for a really long time. And then it's sort of like <clears throat> I'm talking myself uh, in into it a, a little bit and um, not really noticing that it's actually not that uncomfortable in my body to feel a little bit, uh, uh, you know, whatever, like whatever uh, difficult emotion is coming up, frustration. Um, that that it's that it's kind of it's okay. This is why I think Domerado says, you know, hello darkness, my old friend, because it's just it's just there again, and it's a different way of thinking about it. When a lot of times you've trained yourself to like, no, not this again, like because we know it's going to come again. Uh, that's that's just how it is, you know. But you can well oh. you can welcome it, um, and. <clears throat> and if you look at your actual reality, most of the time you're actually in a really safe space. And um, and also the, the Buddha recommends a lot of things like like just changing positions, you know, just doing something else, going and sweeping the floor. Sometimes that can be enough instead of just focusing so much on it and hoping that that's going to be the way to do it. He gives in one of his suttas, he gives like five different ways of dealing with it. And that's the one that I find really helpful is like, hey, just go outside and go for a walk. Uh, go start sweeping the floor. See what happens then, you know. Uh, and yeah, that's just my little tip there uh, for that. Oh. But it, it sounds it sounds to me what happens for me, too, is like not being satisfied with where I'm at right now and not actually seeing my reality of like, oh, wow, I have a really nice house. I'm well fed. 
I'm living in a super rich country. Everything's yeah, pretty yeah. awesome. You get like so tunnel visioned on like the small negative sensations and emotions. And we think it only happens to us too. We think that it doesn't happen to anybody else. That's the main thing. And and yet we would have never learned it if it hadn't been happening to the people around us. Yes, David. I have a, I have a question. Um, so I, uh, most of my life, I feel like I was repressing a lot of like depression and anxiety. And uh, when I acknowledged those feelings later on in life, um, I actually try to acknowledge those emotions more, but uh, because I repressed those emotions for such a long time, uh, when I do acknowledge those emotions, I can't seem to handle those emotions and those emotions tend to come in long periods of waves, even through mindfulness. Uh, well, what do you recommend me to do then? Well, Actually, this is exactly what you're talking about is very, very much related to Robert and what he's talking about, except that the um, your time duration or frequency is longer and his is shorter because he's had a lot of practice. But it's still exactly the same thing. And that uh, a key ingredient that is often really helpful is to recognize back to the original teaching of the Buddha of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Is what I'm doing right now satisfying or not? Even if, and we ask that question even to our practice, even to our meditation practice, is this enjoyable right now or not? And if it's not, go do something else, make a change. May need to be a change in posture, but basically, the big change that's actually needed is uh, a change in attitude or a change in thought. And that part of that has to do with the waking up that the deep breathing has available for it. And so we can always see every one of these items as a friend. There's no enemies here. We only have friends, even the bad feelings because we've had them before and we've hated them before and treated these bad feelings as enemies, which means that we're in the process of creating enemies that are trying to do us in. Let us have whatever it is that's happening, let's call it a mistake or a blunder or whatever, and we can treat that also as a friend. It's a, it's a training tool or it's a, uh, a lesson to be learned and if we treat it um, with with friendship and curiosity, we can in, inspect it with the idea that I can be finished with that. One of the ways that I like to say it is, is that every toy that we play with, if you play with it well and often, you'll break it. Every toy breaks. And so if we have our bad feelings, our, our confusion, our doubts, our frustrations, our worries, whatever like that, if we turn them into toys and play with them, they'll break, they'll change, they'll take on a modification. But if we keep treating them the same way that we've always treated, push them away, don't exercise it, and it stays pristine, and we never get it finished. It's like keeping the basement dirty. <laughs> Rather than 
saying, hey, I mean, this is just an old memory. It's just an old piece of junk there. Let me play with it and throw it out. Yes, Robert. Um, yeah. So regarding what you were just saying, is it sort of like um, with your method where we have the gladdening step as opposed to like the usual method of you, like the Mahasi method, you just be mindful and you just let whatever's there be there. With your method, it's like um, you're introducing this trial and error process. And is that what you mean when you're playing with the toy? Is it's like you feel there's some suffering and so you, instead of doing the same thing again and again of just being mindful of it, you change your approach a little bit and adjust to try and see if you can sort of minimize minimize the suffering in that experience and that's like what playing with it is yes like it's like a trial and error thing you're just like figuring one, it out one thing though that i would have to mention is is that even though i have a lot of my own experience and have have had a lot of teachers um it is part of the um let us say um uh, intentional way of doing things is, is that I'm not teaching my method. This is the teaching of the Buddha. It's in the suttas like that, that, uh, uh, that I have become partially skilled in the suttas, not for my own practice, but so that I can make sure that what I'm teaching the students actually uh, is the practice of the Buddha. That's yeah, yeah, it's it's not your method. Sorry, sorry, I I'm paraphrasing it that way. That's just like how I think about it because um, you were the first person to introduce me to it, so that's I guess why I think about it like that. My apologies. Yeah, it's not. It really doesn't belong to me. I freely give it. If you want it, it's your method, not mine, because it actually is your method anyway. <laughs> In that regard. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I'm just I'm just uh, kind of showing you your natural method anyhow which is just to chill. You know how to chill. You don't need instructions on how to chill. All you need is the, the skill to remember to chill. <laughs> yeah, and the rest is like figuring it out. We remember it and then, okay, now I'm mindful, just like figure it out. Yes, Joe. Uh, I, I was just gonna comment that I've, I've had a lot of other teachers in the past and a lot of them have very, very similar teachings because it is the teaching of the Buddha, you know, and it might be worded differently, but you'll find it in many, many different traditions and many, many different teachers uh, expressed in essentially the same way. And it's really helpful sometimes because you can, like Damarado says, he's like, you hear the same thing, but I have to say it in like a hundred different ways for it to eventually change in, in your mind. Uh, but just to know that, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of teachers that do that. I think it's just because sort of the, the hardcore Dharma uh, community on the internet has such a strong voice that, that you can forget that, that, uh, yeah. yeah, but because I haven't, I haven't really been involved in that community at all. Uh, I can kind well, of see it, you know? In, so, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, I, I've, I haven't really been involved in that at all, but I've seen it. And so yeah there's there's that and then just to, i just wanted to comment on what Dai lee said uh about like it feeling overwhelming so i mean i've i've been in that position too and sometimes uh to see the silliness of the situation as hard as it is uh in that moment uh but to really see 
wow, I'm really talking myself into not being able to leave my bed right now. You know, like I'm completely mm -hmm. safe and secure. Isn't this so ridiculous that I'm a grown man and I'm laying here in bed and I can't get myself to do anything? This is so ridiculous. Why don't I just get up? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, and like, it's hard. To, it's easy to say it right now, but, but like there might be a moment where that clicks, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, this is so ridiculous. Like there's nothing physically wrong with me. Uh, it's I'm perfectly fine. How the heck can my thoughts make me so paralyzed? Well, wait a minute. My thoughts can also make me so energized and so joyful and so yeah, just easy to live life too. If they have the power to do this, they have the power to do that also. It's just we've been training ourselves for a long time uh, to do the the other thing that you're talking about. So, mm -hmm. um, actually, that's that's great, Joe. And following along with that, back to uh, Robert. Um, I think Robert, you can also see that many many people talk about the overwhelmed or this is too much that they need to take a break from meditation and whatnot like this all right actually the key is not that they're overwhelmed um let us put it this way imagine that there is a bookcase that's full of books that's not actually 100 percent stable and it's easy for the toddler to help climb up so that he can stand up by using that bookshelf as a, uh, a steadying case to help him to stand up. And in the process, he pulls the bookcase over on top of himself. OK, and now he's overwhelmed by the fact that he has put himself uh, in a position that the bookcase has fallen on top of him. We often do that with our own emotions. And so the invitation is to recognize that it's not that you're overwhelmed, it's that you wanted something. And that the overwhelming is how much you want it and the frustration is because you're not getting that which you want. And so one of the ways of stopping the practice of that kind of meditation practice is to say, right, wait a minute, I don't have to want anything, I can just chill right now. Or the way that the Zen folk talk about it is enlightenment. You're already enlightened. Don't want anything right now and you'll be okay. Yeah, I think one of the things I noticed while you were saying that and a few other things before was that a lot of that, um, a lot of that resistance and that overwhelm came from like being afraid of like the next thought that wasn't here yet. So I had to be like, I got to stay mindful. So I'm like ready for the next one when it's arriving. But I can, but I think Joe or Brandon, or you said something earlier that that clicked, and I've just been processing it a bit. Where like, I I don't have to be waiting for the next thought. I can just become mindful now. Never mind, start again. And I've already started again. Now I can just chill. And if I go unconscious again because I'm not like holding myself super steady on my object, like that's fine. Because never mind, start mm -hmm. again. Right. That's, like, be gentle on yourself. Right. Yeah. But it's like fact... just another approach to do that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Here's the here's the secret. You are going to like everyone else. Everyone screws up. What that means is, is that we set standards for ourselves that we can't keep. And when we don't keep that standard, we are breaking a rule, we think. And then the breaking of the rule is bad and we feel bad. 
the reality is, is that we set our standards often too high. And Robert, you're the kind of guy that's going to set yourself really strong, high standards and then feel bad because you can't make them. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of person I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so what we can do instead, by remembering to do instead, is to nurture yourself in the sense that everything is okay, everything is fine, there's no worries. And this reminds me of a Zen story of the uh, the Zen student coming into the meditation hall, sneaking his way up, not to disturb the teacher. And when he gets in front of the teacher, he asks in a soft voice, teacher, teacher, are you meditating to become enlightened? The old man took a deep breath and opened one eye, just taking it easy and says, no, I'm just sitting here because I am enlightened. <laughs> so that's the way to do it is just to sit here because you've already gotten everything. You don't need anything now. You're completely satisfied and comfortable. You're already lightweight. There's no, nothing heavy right now. That's what enlightenment is all about, is that you just let things be light. They're not heavy. Yes, David. Uh, what if uh, we go out into the world and, you know, people expect a certain standard of us, and when we don't meet those criteria, then we get scrutiny for it, or uh, why not? Yeah. Well... If that happens, you have a choice about are you going to feel bad and go along with them and say, yeah, your rules are right and correct, and I did screw up, poor me, let me suck your behind or something like that. That's the one, I mean, we have to apologize and say I'm sorry and all of that kind of stuff. But the question is, are you going to be sorry when you say sorry? Maybe it's even a good idea to just say, I apologize. I recognize that you're uh, suffering because of the, uh, that I've broken your rule. But we can be friends anyway. That's another way of apologizing is to give the guy his due because he's wanting something. And so you satisfy that which he needs, but you don't have to feel bad. If you can remember that you don't have to feel bad. But you see, we've been practicing our whole lives that we're supposed to feel bad when we break the rule. But if we feel bad when we break a rule, then one of the ways that we can get out of it is by denying that we broke a rule. And by going into denial, we're actually now creating an additional problem. One, we broke the rule, and two, we're lying to ourselves about it. And we try to hide the truth. We don't want the facts come out because the facts are that we've broken a rule and by doing so we've screwed up. And so we go into denial. But if we can think of that, uh, that, uh, that wrongdoing that we did as just another learning opportunity, just an old friend to come say, and then we can learn something from it. And by learning from it, we can improve. But if we deny that it was a break, and let us say that someone gets angry and somebody mentions, oh, don't be so angry. And he says, I'm not angry. I'm just talking loud. You know? 
when we deny our anger, that means that we don't have a chance of actually witnessing it, feeling what anger feels like, taking a deep breath and letting it go. So people who are denying they're angry when they're angry will remain angry. Those who admit that they're angry, they can get over it really easy. Because it's not bad. If it's bad, then uh, we'll, we'll stay in it. Because we're denying that we're in it, rather than being able to get over it. So this is part of the investigation, so that we can investigate. But we have to investigate knowing that when we go down into that basement, we're going to find a lot of crap. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of crap in there. <laughs> and that's okay. We're going to be able to see it what for what it is, enjoy the memories of it, etc., like that, and then haul it out to the road. Don't need it anymore. Throw it out of the mind. So this is the way of, of practicing. But most people will get stuck on that, that they'll, they'll run, in their investigation, they'll run across something and they'll feel really bad about it. And then they call that meditation practice. Robert's an expert at doing that. <laughs> in, in relation to this, Domerato, um, if we're in that angry uh, state of mind and we're aware that we're angry and the other person is standing there saying, why are you angry? There's nothing to be angry about. Uh, and, but you feel like there is something that you're a little bit uh, upset about. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if you can comment on that, because I, I really noticed when you said uh, that I, I, I know I do that. I know I do the uh, I, I'm not angry, but I but I am actually angry because I'm trying to avoid I'm trying to avoid conflict. I'm afraid of. So you're layering the something. denial on top of it. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. Right. OK, I guess that but we were taught to do that. Yeah. Our dads hid his anger from us. And he wasn't very good at it, was he? <laughs> well, my dad, I mean, my dad never got angry. It was my mom that was the. Uh, the so he was one. good at hiding it then. <laughs> no, my dad. I mean, like, no, he, no, my dad. Seriously, he, I, I never, I remember him getting angry like one time as a child, uh, and that was it. I don't know, like when Domerado was saying, "Oh, we've been raised by our parents a certain way." Like, luckily, I had one parent that was just like, I, I don't know, he like, he you was just the happiest all the person. time. And every and everybody like that lived in our neighborhood knew him as the happy guy. That's just how he was. Uh, so, well, go I was I was really with lucky. Your dad more don't listen to us. <laughs> well, he unfortunately he had he had a head injury and he's he's disabled now. Uh, oh, so, ma'am. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and sorry. he'd be happily disabled. Oh, he's very happy to say. Actually, he's one of the most happy I, people. I can't think of a better well, thing to happen to a happy guy than to be disabled. <laughs> that way, he could. He's got a perfect excuse. Oh, he doesn't have to do anything. He's disabled. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he says that all the time. Actually, you ask you ask him like what you ask him what his favorite you ask him what his favorite season, and he's like, I like all seasons. Like that's just that's just how he is. It's amazing, really. He's an amazing guy. That's great. So that's that's the way that we can think of it then is to um, just let everything be easy. That we don't have to strive to get anything from meditation because actually you've already got 
what you need, that this is not an additive practice. We're not trying to gain anything. We're trying to get rid of the garbage. That's what we're doing. And so we work really hard because we think we're attaining something. And so we have to be mindful of every breath, every breath. Oh, I've got to really do this really hard. Rather than saying, hey, when I remember, I can just relax. All I have to do is remember, and then I can relax. I don't have to be on super guard all the time. I just need to be on guard just when I need it the most. Be ready for it. Go ahead, Robert. Um, I really like what you're saying here, um, and I've been practicing um, the approach pretty much uh, exclusively for the time being because, you know, I only have so much energy to put towards meditation. I want to make sure it's what's giving me the most results, which is... Uh, what you've been teaching of me but um i'm just wondering how does this practice lead to insight like no self so like having like no ego and this sort of thing um actually let's not go into a great deal of detail about the definitions of the words and ego and all of that kind of stuff and instead we'll just substitute the word selfishness because that's easy enough for us to see that when we are selfish, we act selfishly. We behave selfishly. Many, many examples of that. Uh, for example, you've got a good friend or a brother who comes to borrow a small but significant amount of money, say 500 or or $1,000. Normally, the first thing that we have to think is, no, I'm not going to give him that money. That's selfishness right there. No, I'm not going to give him what he needs because I need it. That's the selfishness there. But we fail with uh, to have the wisdom and the insight right then to recognize if I say no to him, both of us feel bad. If I give him the money and I'm generous to him, then that gives us both the opportunity right now to feel good. And we don't have to worry about him repaying the debt right now. That's not right now. Right now, the question is, does he get what he needs? And am I going to be uh, gleeful and joyfully happy in helping him get what he needs? Or am I going to compound his misery and let him give me some of it back by being selfish? When we okay. see that, then we recognize that's what happens. That's what selfishness always is, is that we're trying to cling to something as it belongs to me, where in fact, we would, by giving it away, be able to create generosity and create gratitude and create good feelings, which is what we really want from our resources of money anyway. And here we are by clinging to that money, actually creating the exact opposite of the use of the value of money. Okay, but so the but the self is like still here, like it won't like we won't like. Uh, well, it's like not here. It wait a minute. It, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's not do Hinduism right now. It's not that it's still here. It that it comes back. Right. Right. It returns. It just keeps coming over and over again. A new opportunity to practice. <clears throat> Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Sometimes we're selfish, sometimes we're not. Sometimes we don't get what we want, sometimes we do. When we don't get what we want or when we are selfish, that's the point in time that we really need to be mindful so that we can take a wise way out 
that winds up being joyful and valuable for everyone rather than being selfish and causing ourselves and other people trouble. Right. I I just mean because like even when I do the technique like correctly, like right now, I feel probably like this is like the, the best application of the technique that I've done in a really long time. Like I feel really good. Um, but I still have like like my same sense of self. It's the exact same. Like I still feel like just me. Like so it and hasn't that's like okay. You're good. I mean, yeah, it's, it's fine. You You're already okay. Okay. Don't right. look for anything special. Just enjoy how you are right now. If you, you can like, enjoy how you are right now, you're building the skill of enjoying how you are right now. Or if you're developing the skill of satisfaction, that skill will grow so that you become more and more satisfied. That's the technique. That's the trick is, is that the skills will develop if you're practicing that skill. Is like so I have something to say uh, in regards yeah. to this. Okay. Um, uh-huh. I would recommend, since I know you quite well, Rob, to continue with this practice and maybe one day when you're just exploding with happiness all the time, then you can go apply all the effort you want to the dry insight kind of stuff. And then you can feel like you're the sound of your air conditioner and your foot and the glass in front of you if that's what you want to do. But for now, being happier is probably going to help you out a lot more than that experience. And being someone who's had similar experiences like that, I will tell you that they are dissatisfying in the end because what you really want is to be happy and feel okay throughout the day. And just because you feel your sense of self to be dispersed between a bunch of different sensations doesn't necessarily make you smile all the time but this this technique can do that oh it can okay it just takes a long time uh no no no, it just takes right now no No. yeah it can it it, it doesn't it doesn't take a long time because that's our that's our mind that sort of is like putting it into a category of like if i just now do you this just long enough gold, like a, like a video like a video game <laughs> and i level up you know yeah 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 when we recognize that this is so dead easy it's the easiest thing to do is to drop your garbage that's the easy way out just to like, drop it a way to think about it is Sure, you can think about it as a video game and you're gaining experience as you go along, but really think about it from the perspective of Mario or whatever, whatever video game character you want. He's about to, in his perspective, he's about to get a gold coin. Oh, and then in another second, he gets another gold coin. Oh, and then another. And all you ever have is that second where you can either choose to get a gold coin or not. And... The more you choose the wise option to just be happy with the skills that you've developed to the best of your ability, as long as you're not overstressing yourself, the more you get those gold coins of just a little bit of satisfaction here and there, then you'll be able to get them even easier. Mm-hmm. But In fact, that's the stress. important point is to get it right now and not mm-hmm. to make it a struggle to get it right now, too. 
But in fact, yeah. that struggle is the fact that we, there's no gold coins in sight. Yeah, you you've you have that negative mindset that oh man, get becoming happy is the hardest thing in the world right now. I can't <laughs> do it. It sucks. Life's horrible. But there's a gold coin like an inch away from you if you just look look at that things the right way and 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 use the techniques. Taking yeah. that right noble attitude, exactly. Just looking at it from the right perspective. Hey, I can handle this. Exactly. What, no gold coin? I, I, I'm all right. I didn't get a gold coin before and I was okay. I'm not getting one now. Yeah. I'm okay. I don't need that gold coin. Yeah. Oh, there's a gold coin. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. It only comes when you don't need it, I guess. Well, that's how a lot of good things in life work when you're not chasing. Mm -hmm. When you're not chasing. That's the best way to catch a cat, by the way. The best way to catch a cat is by not chasing it. For me, it was always sitting down on the floor and putting a piece of sheet music out right in front of me. Guaranteed that cat's going to come lay on that sheet music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> I guess nowadays it would be like a keyboard. Uh, I think it's I think it's hard to remember to like put effort into not striving, but that's a skill to be like repeated over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, and just this sense of like striving, not being satisfied, you know. Yeah, and it's um, like I noticed yeah. it's like subtler and subtler. Like I'll get over like the really gross striving that's really like, like like it's really obviously painful. But like even now, I can feel like there's like subtle like striving to like do things. It's like it, ah, it keeps going like and that. And then say, yeah, I can see it. It's okay. You were fine when you didn't see it. You're fine now that you can. You're in fact, you're a little better off now that you can see it. Just a little bit of striving in there. Yeah, yeah. I get the dopamine hit because I just saw it, and that's like a good application of mindfulness. That that's that's the change in attitude is is that when we see the uh, the strive, when we see the dukkha, when we see the mistake, when we see the uh, reprehensible uh, thoughts and deeds, normally we feel bad because we're broken a rule. We set a standard that we can't keep. And to change out of the critical mind of not fixing up to the rules and coming to yourself in the sense of nurturing, like a mother nurtures an infant. Mothers do not expect anything from that infant other than an occasional pee-pee and after a couple of days, a great big whopping yellow turd. But that's, and she's very happy when that child leaves that yellow turd. Now, fast forward 16 years later, and if he leaves one of those things in the front room, everybody's <laughs> going to be very angry. <laughs> Why? Because now they're critical of him. But when he was a new babe, we were very nurturing. Anything he does is okay. Wow, let's just have him such a ball. We really enjoy having a baby around, even if we do have to change his diapers. Okay? So think about your mind like that also. Treat yourself like a tender infant, and everything you do is okay. That big whopping yellow turd is a prize 
needs to be looked at and investigated, and then out it goes. <laughs> so think of every thought like that. Every thought is like a, a brand new yellow turd, the first edition from a brand new infant. Treasure it. Wow, what a rotten turd that is. Out it goes. Yeah. At least my baby's healthy. Yeah, he's healthy. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of, yeah, he finally took a crap. That means he's healthy. That's just a state of being human. Why do we keep fussing at ourselves for taking a dump? When that's just such a natural thing to do. We make mistakes. We screw up all the time. Giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, basically, or just being able to nurture your way into practice. That, that if anything, David, the real practice is the practice to remember to nurture ourselves when we're screwed up. That it's okay that we're screwed up. That's fine. I can be satisfied screwed up. And that's really hard because we've gotten such a bad habit of, oh, no, I've screwed up. I've done down this. You know, and we go off into all kinds of bad feelings. Rather than, hey, I got you. I see that. Joe. Um, so just relating to what Tamarado was saying about uh, <clears throat> viewing ourselves as an infant, uh, Sometimes I, I see this in myself, this uh, this comparison, especially between like different practitioners or something that I've read. And to just remember that, like, uh, we also were like a little kid at one point, like staring at somebody else who had like a better bike. For me, I, I grew up in a working class family and I never had a new bike. And it was always like looking at another kid and like, oh, I really want that super nice new GT bicycle. Uh, you know, and the same thing happens with uh, meditation sometimes, especially if you're reading people's descriptions of different states and things like yeah. that, because people can get really colorful, colorful language. And in my experience, it's not really like that for me. It never has been. Uh, maybe they experience things different than I do, uh, or maybe they are, they just, they just emphasize maybe certain points. Or maybe they're Maybe they're preparing that experience for print. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and they're sitting there and like, hmm, how how should I how should well, I change this wording around? How how should I well, do this? And you know, and then you end up. How reading can I it make them like, really jealous? Let's find a way yeah. to make them really jealous. Well, I would, and there's a I huge thing, and there's a huge that, thing with this Jeff. in the in the online the online Dharma community of like mm -hmm. describing it like as crazy as possible, uh, you know, and like, I, I don't know. I mean, you can, you can take like psychedelics and it, your reality can be really crazy. And then you come back to reality and you're like, wait a minute, everything's still normal. Uh, and the yeah. same thing sort of happens with meditation that like, I mean, maybe you have a little bit of a weird experience and then you go to a teacher and tell them about it. And they're like, so what, how, how are you right now? Uh, been there, done yeah, that. That's a really Tom Morata usually says, been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes, always back to the present moment. And the present moment right now, guys, I mean, just look around. Things are right, marvelous right now. Things are okay. There's not a problem, not a care in the world. 
Wait a second. The SWAT set my door, Domerado. Let me be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, what do you think about this? You've been kind of quiet. I'm just trying to really soak everything in. And um, I'm actually a big fan of your uh, your your channel, your YouTube channel. And uh, I've watched some of your videos before. So if he was kind of surreal to actually be in this call uh, with all of you guys. And yeah, I just I just really want to soak in the moments. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. It really is great for us to do this in small groups because we really do help each other. And one of the the really important benefits is for us to recognize that we're all in the same boat together. That we're not an individual that has unique problems. That everybody has frustrations and everybody starts to meditate and they wind up getting even more frustrated. Because they want something to be different. That was my experience. Damarado, I had one more question. I had one more question about what we talked about last time. Just it's just a brief one. So you Uh mentioned like the like noticing the in breath uh, and that there's a lot of mind moments. uh, And during those mind moments, you can notice your sukha and your pity. And I'm just wondering, should you be like verbalizing it or should it be more of a like just a general feeling uh, or that you're inclining your mind in a certain direction to notice uh, in between the the in breath and the out breath? As the skill develops, there will be a progression. In the beginning, the very beginning, we're not in that really nice state. So we've got to talk ourselves into it. Once we're into that state, now we're going to start noticing the factors and the features of it in the sense of, can I sustain this? Can I keep the thoughts only wholesome? We also have, uh, wow, this feels really nice. And we begin to inspect that we do actually feel okay. We feel satisfied. That's really quite marvelous because we're not used. I mean, even when we are satisfied in the world, we're not really paying much attention to it. For instance, if we get a new car or whatever like that, we're really paying attention to the new car instead of how good we feel about it. And we don't even recognize that we feel good, not about the car. We feel good because we've chosen to feel good about the car. That same car could arrive and we could go nitpicking it and feel really bad and think we've gotten ripped off. It's up to us how we feel about it. Yeah, I kind of have a question just like he was saying. So while we're doing the investigation of, you know, Suka or PT or you know any of the factors of jhana once we feel to be in it is it a a kind of like verbalized process in the mind or is it something yes that was what we were discussing so as we continue on with that in the beginning we talk ourselves into it as we begin to experience it we begin to, uh, let us say, note it in the way of talking about it in a blow-by-blow. 
Okay. And as we get good at that, we recognize how much of an effort it is that I can watch it without giving a blow-by-blow commentary about it, but I'm still noticing it very well. The blow-by-blow is just to prepare yourself to be able to do it on a non-verbal level, be able to have that same type of recognition. Precisely so. And so in this regard, what happens is, is that as we're paying more and more and more close attention to how good we feel, we stop talking to ourselves about how good we feel so that we can really experience how good we feel. I see. As we're doing that, that's exactly the movement from the first jhana into the second jhana when we're no longer talking about how good we feel because we're too busy just feeling good. But it is important to get at the beginning when we're getting used to the first jhana verbalizing the factors so that we are we know what we're seeing when it's there Mm -hmm. exactly okay cool sort of like a, a verification process and after the verifications have been done enough often enough that we trust it an example of that would be like going swimming in ice water and so the the neophyte is going to put a toe in and then take the toe out and then put the toe back in and take the toe out and then maybe put half the foot in and take the half out and eventually they're ready to really just jump in and the jumping so I, in then is the jumping into those feelings so that you're really completely immersed into how good you feel this is when the body gets all bubbly and gushy and all of that kind of stuff so what but kind it, of changes can we expect once we've established first jhana what are the ways that we could know that it has become second if that happens ah when even thinking about how good we feel is too much work and takes it take away from the fact that we're really feeling good so by focusing on the feelings themselves in fact we're paying now attention to a mind moment of feelings rather than feel think feel think feel think feel think we're just feel 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 and that's the distinction then between the first and the second genres when we really go into oh wow i'm feeling good how those and we can't even talk about it it feels so good i see that it feels so good so so i had a question related to this uh because i was noticing in my meditation yesterday this sort of gap in thinking uh like with those factors of pity and sukha there and is it just to uh keep going with that and just like try and maintain that yes that's the repetition over and over again rather than uh uh it, it is more like an escalator than it is a staircase. All we have to do is just get on the escalator, and the escalator itself takes us up to where most of us are practicing in Western style. This season is not only a staircase, but every step is like six or eight or ten feet. <laughs> and it's a great big jump to get up to the next step. So when you recognize, no, it really is more like just an escalator. All you have to do is really just get aboard 
and enjoy the ride, that the mind will go into those deeper states as we're paying attention to the various factors. And so in the beginning, in first jhana, we're going to pay most attention to the applied and sustained thought to make sure that the thoughts are wholesome and wholesome and wholesome and wholesome and wholesome over and over again. And then we begin to put gaps in the thoughts. Now, in practice, a way of doing that is uh, getting um, first when we sit down, we can think about anything. If we then start corralling the mind so that it's only going to have wholesome thoughts, then we can corral it even further to have it only a particular kind of wholesome thought. If we get it down even further than that, we can get it down to, uh, let us say, a, a poem or a sutra or a song. And then even more than that, down to a tiny little bit would be like a mantra. Okay, and so I'll use the example of Budo. You heard that one. That's in Northeast Thailand. They use Budo. So Boo on the outbreath. Uh, in breath and then do on the out breath and as we breathe out in that do and the out breath stops we stop thinking and we stop saying the budo we don't say the next boo until it's time to take the next breath so how long can we keep the mind quiet has to do with how long we can maintain and sustain the thought of how good I feel holding my breath and what a nice and how wonderful it's going to be. But we don't do this with words. We do this with thoughtless, just the anticipation of the next breath. And then when it comes in, that's when we come back with the next boo, with the in-breath. And so we're just down to just one <clears throat> or two words. And that as we breathe out, we put a gap between those words. And that's how we enter into the second John. And almost every in, everyone who's ever experienced that, I always come back saying that as soon as we get the mind quiet like that, and we know that it's quiet, the first thing that happens is yeehaw, which yeah. takes us right out of the second John. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's exactly what happened. As I was like, oh, this is just what Damarada was talking about. I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did get the mind to be thought, quiet. And, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so the deep of the skill is to be able to get into it, recognize you're in it, and maintain it for a little while longer. And then take the breath. And eventually we get to the point, can you take the next breath without starting the mind back up again? And so this is a training for the second jhana, but in all cases, we're really intently focused on the pity and the sukha, not upon the applied and sustained thoughts. And so the second jhana is going to be, wow, how wonderful or how marvelous this feels, which means that we're primarily focused with the pity. But then in the third jhana, we let the pity melt away into just complete relaxation of the sukha. This is just so pleasant. And there's no words to it. It's just, oh. <laughs> and then we take an in-breath. Okay. And so this is how we practice that. Now, in the fourth jhana, even that sukha, melts into equanimity or the balance of just just nothing there except the the wheels of the mind itself returning in the sense of paticca samapada in the sense of consciousness and perception and um 
internal organization of thought uh, that breaks out into feelings. And we start watching how all of that stuff works. But we can do that even in the first jhana, that we don't have to keep only in the first jhana having thought or uh, paying attention to the applied and sustained thought. We can also begin to work with the feelings themselves directly. We can begin to see how the mind forms thoughts. But we do that by getting the mind quiet enough without it actually uh, uh, talk. how to say it. it's really hard to pull a clock apart to clean all the gears and get everything uh, uh, the needle bearings get them uh, lubricated get every gear polished and all of that and then put the clock back together it's really hard to do that while the clock is still ticking we have to bring the clock to a stop and the way that we do that is first off by having only wholesome thoughts, only wholesome thoughts. Then we begin to put the gaps into thoughts and start paying close attention to how good we feel. And then we let that mellow out into just relaxed how good we feel. But it's not got that wow sensation of the uh, of the pity. It just melts into sukha. And then that melts into equanimity. And now the mind is really, really super sharp and focused. And then what it's do you not, do at that point? Enjoy. Just enjoy. Okay. The same enjoy. I mean, not that I'm, I'm just I'm just curious, you know, but. <laughs> yeah. Can you yeah. talk more about um, how we know PT from Sukha? Okay. PT and Sukha are a continuum. That let us say that we actually develop a base of sukha first. And as okay. we get the sukha going, then we can bring it up and start to control it, to make it big and small and whatnot like that. That's why that happens in the second jhana is that jumping for joy. Went, wow, this is so great. And then we pull ourselves back out of it because it 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 has that quality of, of how marvelous it is. So okay. the... PT is more like a little bit of an excited joy, whereas Sukha is just deep satisfaction, kind of exactly. soaking into everything. All right. So I've got two examples that I normally use. One is the example of the um, uh, the title game, the title match, the big football game, maybe the World Series of football. I don't know what they call it, the Rose Bowl or whatever like this. OK, and the star of the show has just made a touchdown. The score is close and he's just made a touchdown that changes the score. What does he do within the first few seconds after he makes the touchdown? Celebration dance. Celebrate joy, and jumping, dance and excited. Joy, jumping for joy. That's the pity. What happens 15 or 20 seconds after he makes the touchdown? He calms back down and gets back to work. Oh, I feel satisfied. Oh, or that, yeah. Yeah, so you can see that is, is that the running down the field and getting the motion going is the first jhana, making the touchdown and then dancing around is the second jhana, and then the full relaxation of, wow, we've done it, is the third jhana. 
So that's a way of, of, of looking at it. So here's another example, and that is, is that at uh, Times Square, once a year, you have the, um, uh, the New Year's celebration that have the big ball and it comes down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, down to 0. And what happens at that moment of time? What does the crowd do? Yeah. <laughs> they go stumping for joy. They blow their horns. They shout for finally we've gotten rid of 2021. Now we can really celebrate and have a really brand new terrible year 2022. But anyway, <laughs> what happens immediately after they uh, celebrate is, is that they all break out into the song of Old Lang Syne. Everybody is hugging and they rock back and forth in satisfaction. Oh, should old acquaintance be forgotten? So if you can understand that first initial, yeehaw, followed by wow, that's the kind of feeling that we want. So in that regard, when we are in the first jhana, we will actually visit momentarily the second and the third jhanas. Yeah, I wondered about that because, I mean, it, it felt like in, a, well, one meditation mainly that I did, I, I wondered if it went to something beyond just the first, but I didn't really know how to tell the difference at that point because it was kind of new you know, mm -hmm. to take it to that level. And I wasn't sure where I was. All I knew is it felt pretty damn good. <laughs> uh -huh. But it was All like right, well, moments of like feeling extra good. And then it'd be like, okay, back a little bit more. And then, oh, and then, you know, back down. So. Mm -hmm. All right. So we can say then that the first jhana is the base point or the foundation. And that we need to practice being able to get into that state often and be and to sustain it often and use that as a platform basically for jumping and reaching into the second jhana and coming back down the question is can you come into the second jhana and maintain it for a short time and then come back to first jhana without falling all the way out yeah back to hindrances yeah and so that's why we want to make sure that we've gotten that first jhana very, very strongly established. That that's the real skill is being able to get into first jhana and, and maintain that because that's the platform from which we're going to be able to go into the other jhanas successfully. Go ahead, Joe. So you mentioned that it had the factors of the second and the third. Does it also have the factor of equanimity from the fourth and like the subtleness of breath because sometimes i notice in my meditation that my breath uh it almost becomes so subtle that it's hard to even know if it's there and uh yeah i'm just wondering if that if that factor of equanimity or this this sense of like yeah i, I don't I, I mean yeah the equ is the equanimity present also in the first to some degree Right. We could say that we use the breath then as the vehicle to get us from the first or into the first and then from the first and the second and the third. But once we've gotten into the third jhana, now the breath is no longer as valuable as it is because now our objects primarily are not the body, not the feelings, but actually how the mind itself is working. Right. Okay. And then, like, but, I mean, but it's on, on not to be strived for, it's to right. be ready for when it happens. Right. 
And so sometimes it's I've been a meditating. It's outcome of practice. It's not a goal. If it's a yeah. goal, it'll be very hard to get. Yeah. It's, you have to back into this thing. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes I'm meditating and uh, I, I, I lose, and it's also that I lose track of my body a little bit and I like will stop meditating and I'll open my eyes and I'm like, holy crap, my foot is really painful right now and I didn't really notice. You didn't um, notice it before, huh? Yeah, and I'm, I'm just wondering, is that, like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just what's happening there, for me right now. There is a technique um, uh, that is, is actually a mudra, and that we haven't even talked about the mudras of how good the body can feel, that we can practice that by touching the hands and feeling the body and feeling the touch and the sensations. And also, this is the meditation poses to where we take the thumbs and put them together or this where the, the, the index and the thumb are not quite touching or maybe they touch occasionally, but there's a gap between there. Can you feel the gap? Can, you, can the thumb feel the index and the index feel the thumb and which is which? Can you do that before they actually touch? And also, can the, can you relax the hand? Can the hand become very, very relaxed? Because normally people are doing this with a lot of tension. So we have to consciously make the hand relax. Okay. So there's another one, uh, a mudra, that's called touch the earth. And what that basically means, imagine that you're sitting there in a cross-legged posture with your right hand resting on the right knee with the fingers touching, pointing down with that uh, uh, long finger, almost ready to touch the earth or touch the floor. So that when you're in the fourth jhana, instead of having to wake up or, or open your eyes to check out to see, are you really on the floor? <laughs> you can actually just touch the, uh, the floor with that finger to reassure yourself that you haven't actually flown out of the room. Okay. Because the body is just not there much anymore. That it's becoming kind of a shimmering blob, so to speak. And it can give the feeling of uh, that you're like 60 feet in the air. That when you look down on things, you look down as if you were on a tall skyscraper to where even the cars look like a tiny little thing way down there someplace. And so it's good to be able to remind ourselves in that kind of state that, hey, I'm not flying, that I'm actually sitting here on the ground, and all I need to do is to put that finger down to the floor to touch, to remind myself that I am actually still here <laughs> without losing that state. So that's part of the training. Once we get into the establishment of the fourth jhana, we reckon that, yeah, it's nice, but it, I mean, I've got what I need out of it because everything that you really need is available in the first jhana anyway. These things are like, uh, uh, imagine that you're going into a buffet because they've got one particular food that you really like and you stock up on it. But while you're there, you recognize, hey, wait a minute, this room is just full of all kinds of strange food. That would be the way that we would approach the higher jhanas is just extra food on the plate. Sometimes I find, I though, with the, with the first jhana that the like waves of pleasure or the pity can be a little bit overwhelming. 
um and uh yeah and a little bit uh like seductive kind of like wow i just want to like like only do this you know and uh yeah i don't know if right. you wanted to come and on so that. people become attached to it in the sense of yeah oh a little bit yeah. i can do this only when i'm sitting on the floor no, I mean, I, I have it in regular everyday life, too, you know, like I'm feeling it a little bit right now, uh, you know, just from talking about it and sort of inclining my mind in that direction, you know, uh, so I, I feel the sort of familiar uh, waves there, you know, so. Right, so that's the way that everything has to do back with that feeling of familiarity. That's what we're looking for. How familiar do you feel? How much at home, how much at rest, how much secure do you feel? And so that whole quality of repeating it over and over and over again as it becomes more and more familiar. You learn the territory, you're investigated, you're paying close attention to what's going on. You become friends, become family with your own mind rather than at war because we're not able to keep up with the rules that we make for ourselves. And having internal conflict, I want this and I want that and they need that and they, or I need this one too and all of that kind of stuff. We become a crowd that way. But when we get ourselves into a state of satisfaction, that diversity melts away into unity in the sense of everything is okay. Everything's fine. It's not a distinction between this problem is big, but that one's bigger. It's just that not, these are not problems at all. There's just nothing to it. And so that's the kind of state. Go ahead. Um, I was going to say, can the, um, the conflicts and stuff um still arise but now it's like recontextualized not so much as conflicts because you have like the mindfulness of of all of the sides and you're like respecting them all equally and stuff you're letting them all like say their part or is it more just like like that whole inner turmoil like wanting different things just like sort of resolves like and you just like only like want one thing at a time well we, we were kind of taught how to do it like that by society, by our teachers, by our cousins, by our friends, by our family, by our older siblings, uh, by the bullies at school. We learn this kind of behavior and then we feel like that we're stuck in it. And worse than that, we feel like that's who I am. Without recognizing that, no, the real teaching of the Buddha about anatta is to recognize that you're actually a moving target. You're not the same. Mm -hmm. That you do have choices. And that right now we're exercising the choice of I'm going to intentionally feel good rather than half intentionally feeling bad the way that I've been doing it all this time. Mm -hmm. So that's the way of looking at it is, is that I'm just going to take the opportunity to just drop society and everything that society demands of me and just be who I really am, which is really okay. I'm re I'm fine. Oh, so I guess I it, it doesn't really like matter. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I think like, I tend to see that, like you tend to see that the problems really aren't problems. Uh, yeah. 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 But there aren't really any problems. That's kind of 
Yeah, there never were any problems. problems. There never were any, and there never there never are going to be any problems. There never are going to be any problems. There's always going to be just wants, desires, grasping and clinging, and feeling bad when we don't get what we want. And when we stop wanting things, we're great. And so not wanting anything from meditation is the goal. Learning to train yourself into being satisfied with not getting the jhanas is the only way that you're going to get into them. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. Dag, I'm glad to see you. Hi. Welcome. Yeah. Hi, guys. We've already been... We've already been going for a couple of hours now. I think that we're kind of getting tired, but I'm glad that you joined. That's all right. That's all right. I, I was, I was contemplating whether I should just join or not. Um, I don't. I, I, I woke up having a particularly un, unpleasant morning today. So something, something drew, uh, drew, drew me here. <laughs> me too. So, and now I'm really happy after talking for two hours. So, <laughs> it can change. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was I was ready to go to bed, and now I'm up. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll be ready tomorrow night to go to bed at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, never mind. This will be over, and you'll be tired, and then you'll go to sleep. Everything's okay. Nope, <laughs> never mind. Sleep again. Yeah, never mind. Go sleep. <laughs> Well, guys, do we have any last uh, points, any final questions, or anything? Uh, when are the up? when are our uh, soda pond diplomas coming in? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a piece of paper and a pencil, and you can do your own. Oh, really? <laughs> We've even been given that. <laughs> Actually, I don't have any paper and pencils. Go get your own. (laughs) (laughs) Or better still, you don't need a piece of paper. If you have the real thing, you don't need the paper. Instead, you don't need a piece. (laughs) What was that, Robert? I said, if you have the real thing, like, why do you need the paper? Exactly. You know, I, I just I just saw this recently. This one's done by Bikku, uh, um, uh Ashan Braun. And it is actually a certificate in happiness. But it's a joke. But he knows it's a joke and he's intending it to be a joke. And it is just here, you you know, you are certifiably happy. <laughs> and then he signs it. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, a diploma. But but our society is so diploma oriented. Very diploma oriented, very result oriented, rather than process oriented. Guess what? The diploma is not worth anything if you didn't go through the process of getting it. And if you went through the process of getting the diploma and you got the benefit and the results that the, that the diploma is only supposed to acknowledge that you've gotten the skills. 
That's what it's originally for, but we misuse it. We think that the the, uh, the diploma is now the substitute for the actual skills. Or the proof of the skills. No, the proof of the skills is exercising the skills. That's the proof of the skills, not the diploma. The, prob the problem is, is when you, when you skip class and uh, don't actually do the work and they still give you a diploma anyways. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was my case. I took yeah, that's how it was for me. I realized in college, oh, you don't have you don't have to go to class. There's nobody telling you you have to go to class, and so that that stopped pretty quickly for me. You, you don't even have to make good grades. All you have to do is make good friends with the teacher. That's your only job. Well, guys, this has been really great. I've really enjoyed it today. Thank you so much. I especially um, uh, uh, am appreciative of Dave coming on. Thank you so much, Dave, for showing up. I hope to see you again soon. No, th thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really nice meeting you. I hope to see you again. Dag, what can we do for you? Why don't you give me a call maybe tomorrow or something and we can talk? Uh yeah, um, I'll see about it. Uh, we can we can see. Uh, I'm not sure what what my schedule is tomorrow, but uh, yeah. Or whenever you like, I'm available yeah. for you. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Okay, guys. Thank you so we'll much. See you. Thank you. Again. Take care. See you. Excellent. See everybody. A lot of good Bye. friends today. See you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.